Hello, everyone, and welcome back to First Film, the podcast where we discuss famous directors and their feature-length directorial debuts. My name is Baden. And I'm Kyle. We are back properly, and this week we are looking at Spike Lee. And his film Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, We Cut Heads. That's right, from 1982. And if you want us to return to Spike Lee, make sure to email us at firstfilmpoddy, P-O-D-D-Y, at gmail.com. Leave a comment, leave a like, make sure to follow us on all our podcasting platforms and our YouTube, Facebook, Instagram pages, and our TikTok. But that being said, Baden, let's dive into Spike Lee. So, Shelton Jackson Lee, or Spike Lee, as his mother nicknamed him, was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and his mom was a teacher, and his father was a jazz musician, so he has, like, artist blood in him, for sure. Lee actually stated in an interview with Sight and Sound uh, that while his mom liked movies, his dad was actually not a fan of them. Really? But despite that, his father both acted in She's Gotta Have It, and also scored most, if not all, of Spike Lee's early films. Really? Because he was a musician, right? Oh, wow. He scored all of the NY films, so including the one we'll be talking about today. Wow. Um, and then a number of his early movies, including like Do the Right Thing. So Lee jumped into filmmaking in college with his first known student film being called Last Hustle in Brooklyn. And through a combination of studies at three different colleges, including the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, the movie we're looking at today was actually his thesis film at NYU. So Bed Story Barbershop, We Cut Heads, it was a very, very well-received film. And off the back of that, Lee got She's Gotta Have It in 1986. She's Gotta Have It is about a woman who is in a relationship with three men at the same time. And it made just over 7 million returns. And this was an independent film. And so that's a tidy return for Mr. Lee. Two years later, in 1988, he made the film School Days, Days with a Z. And a year after that, he made the film he's probably best known for, Do the Right Thing. Jam-packed with household names like Samuel L. Jackson, John Turturro, Giancarlo Esposito. Yes. Yeah, so I I find this to be the film that comes to mind first when people think about Spike Lee. And it, it was a big hit. So with a budget of about $6 million, it made over $37 million. Jeez. Yeah. It's just such a good film. But it didn't get that much Oscar attention at the time. It was oh. only nominated in two categories. Uh, I believe it was Best Costume and Best Original Screenplay. But it got no wins that year at the 1990 Oscars. That's a damn um, tragedy. Which is considered a snub. Kim Bassinger, who has been in a bunch of films. Uh, she was Vicky Vale in Batman 1989. She was a presenter at the 1990 Oscars. She was presenting the best picture category. At the ceremony, she actually said that the right thing was missing from the list of nominees because it told the biggest truth of all of the films there. What else was nominated for best picture? Well, the best picture nominees for that year were Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams, My Left Foot, and the winner was Driving Miss Daisy. Who was that by? Bruce Beresford. Who the heck (laughs) is is this guy? He's not Australian film director, more than 30 feature films. Is this like a money laundering scheme? Who is, who is this guy? Is this guy like a real, is this like a, some executive money he laundering scheme? He directed 2016's Mr. Church. What the fuck is, I've no, never heard of this guy. No, these films are not real. How does this guy have four Academy Award wins? 
Regardless, um, Kim Bassinger basically said on stage that Do the Right Thing should have at least been in the nominee pool. She said a bit more than that, but like she basically said all of the films here are great because they tell truth, but Do the Right Thing should be here because it tells perhaps the greatest truth of all. Totally true. Like none of those other films sound even remotely close. None of them sound real. Like it sounds like a chat GPT <laughs> film list. That's so true. Other than Dead Poets Society. Yeah, Dead Poets Society is amazing, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah. So while it's not exactly right to say that Do the Right Thing lost the Best Picture Oscar to Driving Miss Daisy. I think that in a way it did. And Driving Miss Daisy, as far as I'm aware, it's about Daisy, who's this white woman who I guess gets driven around by Morgan Freeman and like they talk about race and stuff. Like reverse Green Book? We'll talk about that more later because there's actually like a, a mirroring thing no that happens way. later. So honestly, given the subject matter at hand, I just feel like they didn't want to put two films that dealt with race in the same Oscar pool. It also could have been they didn't want to put a black director in it. For sure. Yeah. For sure, because Driving Miss Daisy, again, was directed by a white guy. Exactly, yeah. Because um, uh, do the right thing is do the right thing. I know, yeah. Like, it's a snub. It's it's for sure a snub. Um, and Lee has actually stated that he was more upset that a film tackling race issues using safe stereotypes did so well. Like, he was more upset that that film got so much praise and attention and awards when it does things in, like, a very safe and kind of, like, predictable way. Yeah, to not make the audience, like, uncomfortable. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, th I think that's exactly his point. People were worried that Do the Right Thing being in theaters would like cause problems and like increase tensions and that people would like start running amok like Joker. Like I was gonna yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> like all the articles being like watch out for shooters watch out guys. Joker. Yeah you don't want to get gassed in Which your theater. Which is so stupid. It's so stupid. Like for both films. Yeah exactly. So that that's what Lee kind of had to say about it. I should note as well while looking through his like IMDB and stuff there are gaps between some of his films. Not that many. He's got a huge body of he work. He has a lot of So stuff. many films. Not just from directing too, but from like producing and writer's credits. It's yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah, well, that's what I mean because even when he's not directing like movies, he's done so much other stuff. Yeah. One of the biggest ones being he does a ton of short films for musical artists like Michael Jackson, Prince, Eminem, Stevie Wonder, Miles Davis, a whole bunch more. And those are like <laughs> legendary artists. For like, sure. And, and, oh they, and a lot of them were repeats as well. Like it wasn't just one and done like they wanted him back for more wow. videos because clearly he's great to work with he has amazing ideas um so lee continued in a similar style after do the right thing and in 1992 he changed things up a bit making the biopic malcolm x oh yes it was another highly acclaimed film brought him international recognition and rightfully so because it's a damn hard film to make yeah and the thing is even outside of the like actual material being difficult to tackle yeah it was actually just a hard film to make it originally had a white director. Oh, However, shit. there was uproar at a white director potentially directing, you know, Malcolm X. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of overwhelming. And Lee, who had considered the biopic his dream project, he was eventually moved on to it. And that didn't solve the criticism. He himself was a controversial director. And many black people were concerned about how Malcolm X would be portrayed. Again, his previous films were not universally praised by the black community. And the movie almost didn't make it to theaters, at least not Spike Lee. Lee's version. Wow. So the budget was originally supposed to be like 28 million okay. and it ballooned to over 30 million and the runtime was going over like two and a half hours and the studio and some of their creditors got very upset and it was shut down in post-production. Oh shit. However, this is the amazing part, a number of black celebrities including Michael Jordan, Prince, 
Oprah, and a bunch more donated their own money to allow the film to be made in Spike Lee's vision. Damn. And, and they were not investing to get the money back. They just gave him the money so he could finish it. An amazing kind of thing to happen in the film industry. For sure, yeah. And so because of that, Lee was able to put out his three-hour cut of Malcolm X. There was something Crazy. really interesting I saw about how it was the very first film to be filmed in like one of these holy Muslim cities, but Spike Lee himself couldn't go in and film it because he was not Muslim himself. And so they got an all-Muslim crew to film Denzel in, I think it's the holy Mecca. And That's so it's in the film. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, reportedly, it wasn't profitable, but it was critically super well-received. But yeah, I, I put a lot of emphasis on Malcolm X because honestly, what follows Malcolm X is a string of films that were almost all critically well-received, most of which have like great premises that I want to see. And yet I've never even heard their names. Yeah. And like there were a couple of quote unquote duds in there. Girl 6 was apparently like quite bad. But then he had a bunch of others that were well-received. Crooklyn, Clockers, Get on the Bus, all well-received, all movies that I now really want to see. Yeah. Funnily enough, 1996's Girl 6 had Quentin Tarantino as an actor in it. I think his character's name was QT. Uh, At the time, he was like a fan of Lee's work. Lee was also a fan of his uh, movies. But this is where another thing comes up where uh, people may know that the two of them actually have a long-standing feud. Really? Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah. So the feud began in 1997 when Tarantino released Jackie Brown, which used the N-word 38 times. And so Lee, in an interview, sort of like questioned the use of it. Didn't Quentin Tarantino cast himself as a character who says it like six times in that movie? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so Lee, in an interview, kind of like, he talks about like why Tarantino's so obsessed with the slur. Lee kind of asked if he was trying to be like an honorary black man. Obviously Tarantino (laughs) was like very upset about that. Um, There isn't that much to the feud. Every now and again something will come up like um, when Tarantino did Django Unchained um, Lee said that he wouldn't watch it because it would disrespect his ancestors and Tarantino said that like he wouldn't have been upset if a lot of these conversations happened in private but Lee did it in like public interviews and stuff which I think is funny given how publicly Tarantino criticizes people. There's something new every three months with Tarantino. Yeah like he, he criticized David Lynch like very publicly he was like he stuck up his own ass or whatever there's so much bullshit with that and so that is kind of the extent like to call it a feud is kind of funny they just kind of insult each other in one of the interviews for Django Unchained the interviewer asked Quentin if he would be like showing the film to Spike Lee and he was like nah that little guy has to buy a ticket (laughs) that interview was trying to start some shit exactly a lot of people purposely (laughs) try to inflame them on this stuff I mean I don't blame them it's probably so easy to get a rise out of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> like, he's, like, on his boiling point At 80% every single of the time. time. Yeah. Yeah. Especially about that, like, I don't know. I was only vaguely aware when I started doing my research of Spike Lee and his sort of, like, controversies. He has as many haters as he has fans, basically. Lee is very outspoken when people are critical of his work. Right. Which, in and of itself, has caused some people to say that he's, like, too sensitive or whatever. So, he's very adamant that everyone who watches his films has lived a completely different life and will experience it in a different way such that when people ask him who did the right thing and do the right thing he responds with who do you think right he's trying to say that like there is not necessarily one answer to everything because everyone's experienced all these different things for sure he talks about how he can't portray the entire black race in any one of his films and that he gets more criticism from black people calling his portrayals negative than he does from white people actually and so I, I 
I think his point is that not everyone will identify with his characters and that it's too complex and to tackle something broadly and safely is how you get a film like Driving Miss Daisy. This is not me saying agreement with any of this. I'm just, that's sort of my analysis of his point. That's something that I think bleeds through into other work he has that's been criticized, is this these similar ideas, which right. is why I sort of brought it up uh, at the top here. So that was the first big controversy that came up in my research, the first of many. On to another controversy. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, in 1999 came one of Lee's biggest controversies where he stated that the National Rifle Association should be disbanded uh, and that someone should shoot Charlton Heston. What? <laughs> So Charlton Heston, he, he's an actor, obviously, um, and he was the president of the National Rifle Association. Oh my god, really? And uh, Lee said that uh, someone should shoot that guy with a forty-four bulldog. <laughs> <laughs> so it apparently was supposed to be a joke. He's saying disband guns, but also like someone should shoot that yeah, guy. Yeah, like <laughs> joke or not, it did not go over well. And in that same year, he was also critical of George Lucas's Jar Jar Binks. He said that he was out of touch due to him having more money than God. <laughs> I mean, shit, he's probably right. He's totally right. Man, Spike Lee's interviews are so good. When I sat down, never would I think Spike Lee and Jar Jar Binks would come into conversation. I know, I know. It's so good, though. Uh, After that, for about a decade, I mean, this was like 2004, it started to like the mid-2010s. In combination with all the controversies and stuff, there was kind of like a growing dislike for Lee as a director. He already had like fans and haters. Yeah, yeah. And this is where I think the line started getting drawn even more. Interesting. Where it's sort of like, do you like Spike Lee or do you not? There's sort of not a middle ground. Yeah. But the last thing I'll say regarding criticism of Lee is that he's long been called out for his representation of women. So Rosie Perez from Do the Right Thing, she has a sex scene with Spike Lee. I don't know if you remember it, which apparently she was like uncomfortable filming it. Yeah. The She Hate Me had the lesbian plot line, which people didn't really like. He also defended Woody Allen, Michael Jackson, and Nate Parker, all of whom have essay allegations. Yikes. That's one of the more lingering things that people talk about him regarding his films is like while he tackles race really well he doesn't tackle sexism very well more recently though 2018 he made two films Passover and Black Klansman yes both of which apparently are great Black Klansman's amazing and he did The Five Bloods in 2020 yes. that's a Netflix film Chadwick Boseman Jonathan Majors that streak of films nothing but hits nothing but net yes. as they say but yeah he's got a number of films coming up I think his next one is going to be it's a musical film about the invention of Viagra. The title apparently is Boner. He's also doing something called Prince of Cats and The Understudy. Don't know what those two could be about. Very Looks excited. to see. But man, he's got a huge body of work and like, I'm ready to go and watch a bunch of them now, I think. But before we can watch any more of his films, we have to go back to his first film. Joe's Bedstoy Barbershop, We Cut Heads. Let's do it. So right off the bat, to get us started, Bane, do you want to give us a summary on what this film's about? For sure. So, essentially, there's a character called Joe. He's got a barber shop, and he's mixed up in sort of like criminal activity. He's running numbers. It's kind of like this illegal gambling. One of the characters describes it as like this section of Brooklyn stock market, like a stock exchange. Oh, like an underground kind of. For lower income people. Yes, he runs the numbers outside of the barber shop. He, occasionally, the people who make the numbers, which will 
get into a little bit later, mm-hmm. have them keep money, and so he has to go deliver it. But instead, he takes all the money and tries to flee with it. And the opening part of the film is basically them killing him. But Zachary, who was kind of like his understudy as the barber shop, mm-hmm. and also he worked with him, he doesn't want to close the barber shop. His wife Donna wants it to close because of all the controversy, but he wants to keep it open because cutting hair is the kind of best thing he does. Yeah. And over the course of the film, we see Zachary kind of succumb to the corruption of this numbers game. There are a lot of themes in it. For an hour, yeah. I think it actually has quite a dense uh, amount of themes and a lot of like really memorable characters. Yeah, I want to talk about the opening sequence because I really liked how the opening was handled. Totally agree, yeah. So to kind of set the scene, there's like this crime noir vibe to this film. Mm-hmm. Like the music, of course. Like the... Yeah, because it's got a kind of jazzy soundtrack because his dad did the score. Yeah, yeah. Um, like trumpet, piano, that sort of stuff. And it kind of settles you into this feeling like, oh, everything's going to be okay with the music, but while, like, awful things are happening. Yeah, yeah, which is, like, a staple of noir. Yeah, so Joe's kind of going outside of his shop. He gets taken by these two guys, and they bring him to, like, I think it's the side of, like, the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, 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 it's by the river. Yeah, and they're asking, like, where the money is, and they tie cement bricks to, like, his body. Yeah, and knock him, him out into the and river. just chuck him into the river. Horrible way to go. But, like, the scene itself, I think, is really well shot. Yeah. And, yeah, I think everyone acts really well in it. Yes. I think all the actors are really good. I think the dialogue's great. There's some great lines really, in really this movie. Really, really good stuff. There's this one great line. It's about Thaddeus, the troubled kid mm-hmm. who Donna makes Zachary take in yeah. to kind of like, you know, make sure he stays out of trouble to give him a job. And Donna says, he needs direction. And <laughs> Zachary says, Rikers Island is that way. <laughs> and it made me laugh despite like, like, it was such a good moment. For sure. There was one line that I wasn't like super sure about. It was um, Zach was sort of outlining to his understudy Thaddeus. He was like, oh, these are the different type of heads. You know, he felt his head and he's like, you have a lumpy head. Yeah. <laughs> there are like egg heads and, and whatever heads. And square and, heads. Well, square heads, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, Thaddeus is like, what about dickheads? <laughs> and then there's like a silence. <laughs> yeah. Like there's no response from Zach at all. And then he just like sits down and they never acknowledge It's so funny. And I was like, ooh, that joke did not land at all. Yeah, I feel like he didn't want to say anything because if he knew if he did Thaddeus would just like one up him almost yeah I don't know there's another thing it's when the business is failing like these two missionary women they come in and they're like Jesus is coming any day now and he's <laughs> like I understand that but I gotta pay my rent yeah no yeah there is good dialogue and I don't know I think Zachariah was like such a fun lead to follow yeah like he's trying his best he's like kind of quippy he's he's sharp witted exactly um, but he's also like very humble and, and loyal so the interesting thing is again he just wants to cut hair and he wants to keep Joe's legacy even if that legacy is kind of corrupt. Interestingly and this is something that his wife brings up as well it's not just that he wants to cut hair it's that he wants to specifically do it in like this older style like yeah. this classic style because at, at one point his wife sort of comes over and is like hey check out this this flyer I have from like a different place it's like check out these interesting styles they're doing people are really interested in curls yeah right? and he's like I refuse because it's, it's the newer style of hair I guess and he wants to do the classic style. He's very set in his old ways. Exactly, yeah. And she's like, why are you so stubborn? And I think that is like another sort of theme in this film, like this sort of old versus new letting go of like the older style, the the tried and true and like evolving. Yeah. And his refusal to evolve and how that's his downfall, I think. Because... Basically what happens is, like you said, his refusal causes him to accept running the numbers game. It's the only way to keep the business alive. And this introduces...
introduces probably one of my favorite characters in this film. Oh, yeah. And his name's Nicholas Lovejoy, and he's like this oh, very man. well-dressed crime boss, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's I got very... a real Kingpin vibe from him. Yeah, he talks in this very particular way. It's like the kind of Wall Street business speak almost. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? it's, it's a bit posher than everyone else. And so he talks about the numbers, and the way he talks about it is like this very like moral high ground, like I'm doing this for the good of the people. Like he says essentially black people are 90% consumers and that what he does is noble getting families out of like the projects which is right. like a lower income like uh, district I believe and he gives what he calls hope but again it's just gambling it's a gambling thing right but it, it's an interesting ideology for him to have and it, it's just a very interesting subversion from what you think a crime boss is gonna be in like a gangster movie because that's kind of what it mm-hmm. is and, and that's one of the things I think is also alluring for Zach right yes. is when Lovejoy first meets him he's even like I think you're surprised to find that I'm a black man yeah because obviously he has a reputation on the streets as like a businessman or you know someone with a lot of money and so he's like you're surprised that I'm black aren't you his entire shtick is an act yeah much like a politician like there's this one scene uh, I don't know if you remember this where he visits Zachary and Donna at his at home house, yeah, yeah. right it's portrayed like oh I'm being nice because you know you're opening my business he gives his wife flowers and I yeah. think like chocolates or something but literally what it is it's to gain leverage it's a threat yeah yeah but let's talk about the ending. So what happens is literally Zachary does the same thing as Joe, essentially. Yep. Nicholas Lovejoy's men, they come in and they're like, keep this money. We'll come back tomorrow. We just need you to like hold Basically, on to Basically like someone's won. Yeah. So you need to hold on to this suitcase of money until they come by to pick up their winnings. And he sees the money and he's like, yeah, I'm skipping town to Atlanta. And it's not entirely random. Like his wife earlier in the film expresses how like she wants to get out of the city. Um, and so I guess he feels like this is his chance to maybe do right by her so he goes buys a first class ticket and interestingly enough i'm not sure about this but i swear he wears the same jacket as joe in the beginning oh really i think so yeah he's he's basically taking on the same fate as as joe yeah and so he gets a call from donna and donna's like oh nicholas is over like yeah. is everything okay and then he realizes oh shit yeah like she hasn't left the house he was expecting her to meet him at the airport but nicholas got to her first so he goes back basically explains everything almost turns and, over the money yeah and then he's furious and he's like, I'm not running numbers anymore, pretty much. And Donna's like, you're going to get firebombed. They're going to throw a Molotov cocktail through like your Mm -hmm. front window and you're going to burn alive. And there's this really tense scene. And I felt like I was on the edge of my seat Mm -hmm. where he stays the night at the barber shop and you're like, yeah, yeah. killed or something. And then he lives. Then the last shot of the movie is him and Thaddeus playing cards, like where the numbers table once was. Yeah. Yeah. And it just zooms out and you don't know whether he lives or dies. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like he's kind of accepted his fate either way. He's sort of like joking about how like they're going to come for me. And then Thaddeus is like, well, I'll be sure to take, fo- I'll be, uh, I'll take photos of your mangled bullet ridden body yeah. <laughs> and sell them to the newspaper. And Zach is like, well, make sure you get my good side when you take the photos. <laughs> Just kind of joking around a bit morbidly. But um, yeah, we sort of don't know what happens. Like do, do Lovejoy's men go over to finish the job? Does Thaddeus live? Does Zachariah live? And it makes you think. And I think that's a really good ending. It does cause you to think what his actual fate will be you know what i mean yeah i think there's also an implication the fact that he survives the night to me indicates maybe for some reason lovejoy decided not to kill him exactly and then you start thinking like well what could the reason for that be and it's like okay maybe lovejoy actually respected him in a way at the end is it like what does it mean for him to live or die as well like is it justice is it like fair because he tried to like skip out on the guy's money yeah what is it i don't know i think it's better because it's it's ambiguous 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, honestly, at the end, you know, one of the things is, I think there's an implication that if Zach would just try out some of the newer hairstyles, he could actually get a lot more business. Well, maybe that's what he's a representative of. The new. Because he's a literally a new figure mm-hmm. in Zach's life. And when Zach first meets him, he doesn't really accept him. He's like, finds him kind of annoying. Like you said, he's like, Rikers Island is that way. Yeah. Like, I don't want to have to deal with this kid. By the end of it, he's actually taking on this kid, almost like a father figure. Well, exactly. Accepting the new, accepting new responsibility. Because he has kind of broken out of Joe's fate at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he doesn't get killed. He doesn't get killed, as far as as we know. Right. I think he doesn't. I don't think they come in, like, after the camera cuts away and, like, shoot him or anything. I think it works out better if what it's essentially is, like, he's able to break the cycle of, like, self-destruction. The system. The system, exactly. Because then, like, he's proving Nicholas Lovejoy wrong. And, like, he's not falling for this entire orchestrated thing, right? Yeah. The ending is supposed to sort of represent him letting go of that stubbornness. Yeah. And finally accepting sort of, like, a new way and, and both standing up for himself, but also maybe evolving as a person. Exactly. So, overall, Bane, though, what did you think of this film? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I... We like watching kind of funnier first films, so we can make lots of jokes about them, <laughs> but this one was just a good film. Yeah. It's also inspiring seeing sort of, like, young filmmakers and what they were able to do. Especially student films, yeah. Especially student films, right? Like, this was obviously very low budget, but he got interesting locations. Yep. He got good actors. I don't know. I, I just... I really enjoyed this one. I really liked it. I highly recommend it if you're kind of looking for kind of a good genre film, I think, too. And I think, again, what I've been impressed with with all the films we've seen is like, I do get hints and I see the seeds of Lee as like a director. Yeah. It really is like a very good representation of him as a filmmaker, as a first film. Now, with that being said, Baden, let's jump over to the behind the scenes. Let's do it. Quiet on set. Okay, so right off the bat, there is very, very little on the behind the For scenes. For sure. Yeah, I'm not surprised. One, because it was a student film, mm-hmm. so they weren't documenting too much. And two, because Lee himself hasn't spoken about the movie that much. Yeah, I bet if we really dug and like listened to every podcast, he's probably mentioned it like in a sentence or two in a, in a few of them. Yeah. But like, it's hard to find stuff. But right off the bat, he directed this movie for his master's thesis mm-hmm. at the New York University Tisch School of the Arts. That's right. And you can probably guess it had no budget because it is a student film and it didn't really make any money because it was a student film. But interestingly enough he would make this film with two of his classmates from the university Mm -hmm. who now both have successful directing careers. Ah, Quentin Tarantino, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No. Uh, The first was a man named Ernest R. Dickerson. No, I've never heard of this guy. Uh, He was the cinematographer on this joint. Okay. I love the way Spike Lee films a Spike Lee joint. I love how he calls it that. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. He directed a film called Juice surviving the game bulletproof and blind faith you probably might know him from a lot of his tv episodes okay and he's directed hundreds upon hundreds oh uh, some shows like er yep. the wire oh i love the wire yeah. dexter treme the walking dead Damn. and bosch but the next figure who was the first assistant director was ang lee oh my god no relation to spike lee just no, want to put that off the bat actually that's really that's funny I... and he directed wedding banquet eat drink man oh my Woman. god everyone should know 
Wang Lee. Most famously, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and he won Best Directing Oscars for Brokeback Mountain and Life of Pi. That's right. Ang Lee, man, he, we're going to cover him, obviously, at yeah. some point, because he's done just, like, another great body of work. So the film would star Monty Ross, who mm. plays Zachary, the barber after Joe dies, and he would actually go on to co-produce many of Lee's later films. Oh, that's cool. Like Malcolm X, Do the Right Thing. But Spike Lee, this is kind of how he talks about the film, he says he wanted it to be a gangster genre film. Okay. And again, the way the film looks, the way it's plotted, I think, definitely showcases Yeah, that. for low-budget, gangster can be also tough, like gunfights and stuff are tough. So obviously it's not going to be that kind of gangster film. It's more yeah. of like... It's a slice-of-life gangster yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. And it focuses more on, like, the victim than it does the gangster. But he also wanted to put a spotlight onto areas of Brooklyn that weren't previously being shown on screens. Yeah. And the film's title actually shows that because the name of the movie, Bed-Stoy, right. means Bedford-Stuyvesant, which was a prominently black Brooklyn neighborhood. I think it's become, like, very gentrified now. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, I don't know for sure. Of course, yeah. But the film won a Student Academy Award in 1982. Oh, shit, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was the first student film to ever be screened at the Lincoln Center Festival of New Directors slash New Films. Wow. That's the Academy Awards, right? Like, Oscar, it's the student Oscars, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty big accomplishment for Huge. your very first film. And that's why I imagine he was able to get so much funding for um, well, She's Gotta Have It. to lead on to that, uh, he got a film grant from the New York State Council of the Arts and the Jerome Foundation, and because of this film, that funded She's Gotta Have It. Right, which was, yeah, like we mentioned before, an independent film that netted him probably like millions in profit. Yes, and so he basically made this film, one, because of the master's thesis, mm -hmm. but because he needed to submit previous work right, like to a apply portfolio, for grants. Yeah. And he would only show this film to like all a bunch of grant agencies, and eventually <laughs> he would get the money. That's crazy. So it's crazy to think how this funded one of his bigger films. And afterwards, yeah, yeah, I do remember reading somewhere that like without this, there's no like Spike Lee. And that's pretty much it. There you go. It is not a lot of stuff that I could find. But again, yeah. if anyone knows anything, email us, tell us in the comments. We're more than happy to get For sure. Hear. Like, I'd love to hear, like, oh my gosh, if there are any stories from on set and stuff. Like, it was, what, 1982? It seems like it was shot on location. They had a bunch of extras. So, like, somewhere out there, there must be some information on, like, how it was to make this one. Oh, yeah. I started out as a fan already, like, because of Do the Right Thing. After doing more research, I... I'm a huge fan of Yeah. Lee. He interviews so well. His interviews are either very chill, and then there are other ones, especially ones regarding, like, the Knicks, where he just <laughs> goes off. He's actually, um, this is, like, tangent to the film stuff, but he's the Knicks's, like, biggest fan. He's been buying courtside tickets from them for 28 years. He's Pro funding probably the Probably more now. He's fully funding the team. Like, <laughs> he, he has been there nonstop, and I don't think they've won in those 28 oh years. Oh my god. I, like, I, not even once like i think he was 13 when they won and like it hasn't happened since jesus um he was banned from the employee entrance <laughs> in one of the interviews like he was very upset about that there's so much stuff he's done so many great interviews and i don't know he i love hearing him talk yeah so thank you everybody for listening to this episode of the first film podcast make sure to leave a like subscribe and follow us at first film potty p-o-d-d-y on tiktok instagram youtube and facebook to never miss an episode of first film 
now. Yeah, thank you to everyone who's been sharing the podcast. By the way, we've seen really great growth recently. Yeah, and um, we're really appreciative of that. On that, make sure to tell your friends, as it's the best way we get new listeners. That's right. And also, if you could leave a five star review in app, it propels our podcast up, also gets new traction here, and so we can keep making more episodes. And Kyle, I think we should probably give them a hint of what we've got coming up in the next couple of weeks, eh? Oh, Baden, what yeah. should we tell them? Well, um, I think we tell them because I'm excited for these next two. So, well, we're gonna drop. I think what you could say an atom, an bomb. atom bomb, a pink atom bomb. Um, yeah. So with Barbie and Oppenheimer both releasing in in close succession with each other, our next two episodes will be Greta Gerwig, her first film Nights and Weekends. Yes. And then after that, Christopher Nolan and his first film, I believe it's called The Following. Yes. So keep an eye out for that. And if you have any suggestions, thoughts, general discussion, or any more info on this film, make sure to email us at firstfilm. Please, please email us. <laughs> P-O-D-D-Y at gmail.com. That's right. But with that being said, everyone, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.